0: We're going to pick up back in Revelation tonight. Actually, what I'd like you to do is turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, first. We've been kind of camping on the text in Revelation chapter 19 about Christ's second coming. When His people are finally united together with Him, that uh, says in Revelation 19 and verse 9, or excuse me, verse 7 through 9 says, Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. To her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. We spent the uh, past couple weeks kind of digging into that and seeing what it is. We saw... His people have a special relationship with Him. Um, this is the time when we are finally united with Him at His return. What people have looked to for thousands of years. Uh, his people who are faithful to Him, living righteously. It's kind of what Sunday mornings have been about. You, know, you want to know how to have fine, clean, white linen? Well, we've been talking about living righteously, presenting yourself as a living sacrifice and doing the things God wants us to do and not doing the things He doesn't want us to do. I mean, it's, that's how we're made righteous, by choosing Him and living according to His plan. So that's what this, this righteousness that's pictured as these clean white robes, that's what it's uh, talking about. And that day is coming when we will be finally united with Him. And I wonder if we're waiting for that, like if we're anticipating it at all. Certainly, we can look around, and I think we've had a wake up call as of late to, to maybe have some of these things hit home uh, with more reality. The, the tendency can kind of be to, to something happens, and like we're, we kind of get a clear head for a little bit, and then we get back into the flow, and it's back to just the daily grind and being consumed with all the stuff I got to do right now, and the bills I got to pay, and the choices I got to make, and blah, blah, blah. We all know it, right? We, we all do that to some extent. And the the rawness, I guess, or yeah, the rawness of the reality that, hey, man, these things, things are going to get worse. But as we know, as they do get worse, it gets closer to us being with Jesus. Uh, Some of that fades over time and and we can kind of just get back in the flow. What we need to have is a mindset that Paul has here in Philippians chapter 3. And I want to spend some some time with that this evening because it needs to be our heart. As Paul writes and pours out his heart here, this needs to be our heart, our goals, our way of thinking. Revelation 19, it says, Blessed is he that is called unto the marriage supper. We know the call goes out to everyone. Right? God wants all men to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. Not everybody follows. Not everybody responds. Some people reject. Some people kind of follow. Or some people follow for a while and then they fall away. The idea is that we should be faithful, living for Him, with this kind of heart that Paul has. So Philippians chapter 3, let's pick it up in verse 7. Basically, in the first part of the chapter... Paul's kind of hitting on some people that were proud that were coming around the Philippians and saying like, yeah, you should follow me. Look at me, I'm this big shot. And he says, hey, if anybody's got a reason to have confidence in the flesh, I've got the most. He says, I I had the right religion. I had the right social status. He had political power. He had wealth. He had a following. He had it all. And all of that changed. When he met Jesus on that road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, when his whole world was changed and he was converted. Of course, we know the kind of life that Paul goes on to live, but look what he says in Philippians 3 and 7. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. He had it all, worldly speaking. Anything somebody could want. And you know what he says? Christ is better. Christ is better than all of that. All of that stuff that I had, I counted as loss. And he said, yeah, I've suffered the loss of all things. And I don't think he's... Uh, making up like this exaggeration, he lost it all. His social status, his so-called religiosity, he lost it all for what? For Christ. He says Christ is far better. He's far better than all of that. Look what he says in verse 8. Yea, doubtless, I count or I reckon, I, I, I bring up the accounts like all that I used to have and now I've lost all that now I've got just Jesus. Just following Him, being faithful. He says, you know what? Jesus far outweighs all of the rest. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. That sounds like insanity to the world. It sounds like insanity to the human mind. You'd lose all things just to know somebody? That's what he's saying, right? I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Knowing Him is far better than anything else. That sounds like insanity until you meet Jesus. Until you know what Paul is talking about. We know how He saves us, how he gives us eternal life when we deserve none of it. All we do is place our faith, and at that moment, we pass from death to life. And I've got a home in heaven now. We know that as we follow him and we commit our lives from him, we, lives to him, we experience a peace that comes from him, a security that comes from him that well, as Paul says in uh, just a couple chapters from here, there's a peace that passes understanding. I don't know who's going to win uh, the presidential election. I'm not shaken. I know who I'd like to win, but in the end, I'm not shaken because my faith is in God and not a man. People can't understand that, right? What if they they lock down L.A. County and we get this stay-at-home order and blah, blah, blah. Okay, it stinks, but Whatever. Because my peace is grounded on something that's far deeper than any of that. And again, the human mind can't understand talk like that. Knowing Jesus is far better than wealth and prestige and social status. Just knowing it, what are you talking about? You have this peace and and no matter your circumstances, don't you understand what this could mean? Well, that's why... I believe it's second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, The natural man cannot understand the spiritual things of God. But as we know God, these things are revealed to our spirits. So then we can say amen when Paul says, Hey, knowing Jesus is better than anything. He says, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them dung." I love that the Bible just is straight up. <laughs> it means what it means. So all that stuff is nothing. I lost it all that I may win or gain Christ. Christ is the goal. That's hard to put in words, in explanation. He, He is the goal. Not like being with Him or being around Him. Christ is the goal. right? That's what He says, that I may win Christ. I count those loss for Him. There's something that happens when His people are gathered to Him that I don't know that our human mind can quite understand. The the depth of being united and being one with Christ. Paul says that's the goal. All right, let's let's look at a couple more things. Verse 9, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. See, it's His righteousness. The way we can be holy is as God makes us holy. We're not going to go in and do it ourselves. We're not going to... Like pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get to this goal because I'm so holy. No, it's as we humble ourselves, He lifts us up. Right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord; He shall lift you up. He will be. Ex- he shall exalt you. It's His righteousness that saves us from sin, that sanctifies us, that sets us apart. It's His righteousness that makes us holy and acceptable. Righteousness which is of God, from God, by faith. You underst- <laughs> do you understand? We can do this through Him. See, we, we talk about these things sometimes and I've heard sermon after sermon on the bride and being part of the bride and it's like this far off thing that there's only... There's only you know, a select few you'll ever meet in your lifetime that will ever be worthy of maybe making it in. You know, make it sound like that. That's not the case. Think about this. Does God give a promise He doesn't keep? No. Does God make a promise to us that is unattainable? No. How hard was salvation? Was it hard? We accepted, right? And God did the work. The hardest thing that will ever happen in your life. The most, important that, the most important thing that will ever happen in your existence was that simple. Placing faith in Him, God did the work, right? So why is the rest so hard? You know what He tells the church? Fear not, little flock. It is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom my father's, I want to give you to this. He's going to take us there. All we have to do is have faith, is follow in faith. Why we make it so hard is because we get in the way, right? We get in the way. We make it complicated. We make the wrong choices when we should make the right choices. We need to have this attitude. Everything else, Pales in comparison to Christ. Christ is better. And I'll tell you what, if you live your life for Jesus, with Him as the goal, with faith in Him, everything else like falls right into place and right in the line. In fact, you'll find those things better and sweeter because of Jesus. If that makes sense. Verse 10, "...that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, both now and then, and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable to His death." Verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That is Revelation 19, that I might attain, which means to arrive at, to come to that resurrection, that I might follow that call. Blessed is he that is called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He says, I want to arrive there by any means. By any means, I want to be at that last trump. When the dead in Christ shall rise, and then we'll be caught up together with Him in the air. That's what Paul's talking about. Right here in verse 11, If by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12, Not as though I had already attained, or either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. That's kind of like Romans 7 language. It's kind of confusing. He says, I want, to, I want to arrive at what I was saved for. Does that make sense? We're saved for a purpose. To spend eternity in this relationship with Him. We're not just saved to, to be born and walk around as a baby for eternity a spiritual baby, to never learn and to never grow and to, to ne- <coughs> never walk with Jesus in any kind of deep and meaningful relationship. No, we're created in Christ Jesus unto good works, ultimately ending in having that relationship. He says, I, I'm not there yet, but I, I'm following after to get to that goal, the reason why Christ saved me in the first place, to follow His call. Verse 13, Brethren, I account not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before. We have to do that sometimes, right? We have to let some things go, whether it's our own personal screw-ups, whether it's things in the past, whether it's things that are holding us down, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching on to those which are before. Verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God In Christ Jesus, blessed is he that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The prize, the high calling is Revelation 19. When we finally are united with him and standing with him, that's the goal. That's the goal. Okay, look at verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect or complete, be thus minded. Let's have the same mind. And if anything, be And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. He's saying, hey, we should be like-minded in this goal. So that's kind of the question I have as I'm reading this. Is that the goal? I mean, is that like what we're living our life for? Are we living our life for the next temporal thing? Which is easy. We can do that. Like, I just want to get here. Or I want to uh, make it to this age. Or I want to get this accomplishment. Which, those things aren't bad. Don't, Don't get me wrong. Those things aren't bad or wrong. But are we of this mind that I'm pressing toward the high calling of God? That's the mark. That's the prize. Like, are you excited to spend eternity with Jesus? Or are you kind of sad you might have to let some things on this earth go? That's how twisted we get. Oh, I won't get to fill in the blank. Really? I'm going to miss. That sounds boring. I've heard some people say about that, about eternity. That sounds boring. Really? We got some messed up perspective if that's the way our minds think. Is that even a goal? I, I think it becomes more real as we age. Like kind of like when you used to never think about retirement, and now you're thinking about retirement and pension and all that as you get on in age, like oh, all of a sudden that becomes really important. Didn't matter to me 20 years ago. Now I'm kind of thinking more about that. I think as we age and we come towards the end of our life, maybe our our, our mind starts thinking more about eternity. Or as things get worse around us, we kind of start thinking about that more. Like I'm tired of some leaders in this world, I want Jesus to be king. Sounds really good right about now. But that has to be in my heart all the time, so that I live every day with that in goal, as with that as my goal and with that in mind. Because someday all of this is gonna fade. Forever will be here. The trumpet will sound. And this will happen. And there's nothing we can busy ourselves with. There's nothing else we can blame. All of that will be gone. It'll be just us and Him. Are we going to be prepared for that? Because you know what? That could happen for any of us in the next second. Just one life, it soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. I heard that years ago, and it's always stuck in my head. We got one shot to do this. And are we living our life with the right goal, the right perspective? Some don't. Verse 18 for many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is. Is in their shame who mind earthly things. Whose God is their belly. Their own desires, their own wants rule them. They're too earthly minded to be any heavenly good. We ought not to be that way. Instead, verse 20, our conversation is in heaven. I love that phrase. Our lifestyle is in heaven. So I'm like living on this earth as if I was living in heaven. Walking with Jesus, being in that kind of a relationship with Him. Does my life show heaven? Am I looking for the day when I'm finally with Him again? Our conversation is in heaven, verse 20, From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is even able to subdue all things to Himself. That's Revelation 19, when we are changed. We are changed to be like Him. Power that raises the dead, power that guides our life, power that changes mortal corruption to immortal purity, and power that will subdue all things. Are we living for that? Because we need to be ready. We got the chance now. When He comes again, things are going to be very different. Revelation 19. Revelation 19 and look at verse 11. We live in the age of grace, beloved of mercy, of love that flows from heaven, that calls us, that that woos our hearts over and over, just like a gentle father telling his children, come on, please, come on, guys, come on, do what you need to do, do what I ask you to do. There is coming a day when that ends and the age of grace closes and that happens at Christ's second coming. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. We've already seen all that has taken place leading up to this. We've seen the calling and the gathering together of His people to Himself. The uniting of His his blessed bride and Himself where we will ever be with Him. And then He sets in motion the end. Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened. What we begin to look at here in these verses is the culmination of thousands of years of redemptive history. This is a fulfillment of most of biblical prophecy coming to pass. You look in the Old Testament, you see all these prophecies of Messiah. Some of it he is suffering, right? The suffering Messiah. Isaiah chapter 53 and some things that it talks about there. Most of it talks about a conquering Messiah, though, right? Which is what Israel was focused on and why they rejected Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come in that manner. He came in the suffering manner so that he would give himself as the sacrifice. Here, he comes back as the conquering king. This is Jesus not only as Savior, but Lord of all. And He's bringing in the end of this age and He's ushering in what is known as the millennial kingdom and eternity itself. So many Old Testament prophecies, in fact most of them will be fulfilled in this period of time. You can read of prophecies and they might be fulfilled like in a short time, Like think like Babylon's destruction in Daniel's time. Those happened in the short immediate realm. Ultimately, they're pointing to this, what happens here, when Christ ultimately comes back. This is King Jesus coming back. This is not Savior Jesus. This is not meek and mild Jesus, meek and lowly Jesus, with a light burden and an easy yoke. No. This is King Jesus, God of the universe, God of all creation, Coming to rule and reign as is his righteous right. There's absolutely no doubt that this is him. Look at the, the names that are given to him. He's on a white horse. He is called faithful and true. He's called faithful and true. Well, if you notice in chapter 3 and verse 14, notice what Jesus says about himself. As he's writing, uh, dictating letters to the church of Laodicea, he says this under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen. That's a good name. So be it. (laughs) He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. He is the faithful and true witness. This is a, a description of His character, of His work, of all that He is. He is faithful and true. We look in verse 12 of chapter 19. It says, His eyes are as a flame of fire, and on His head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Look in chapter 1 and we get a description of Christ as he is glorified. It says in 1 and verse 13, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. You get this picture of just this brilliantly glowing being. I mean, his hair, John describes it, he's like white as snow, and his eyes are flaming, and um, just has this image of, of brightness. Verse 16 He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword. And His countenance was as the the sun shineth in His strength. You ever try to look at the sun in the middle of summer? Man, it burns your eyes. You'll be looking at a little dot for (laughs) about an hour or two. This is the picture that John gives. This, This is glory, is what it is. It's Christ glorified. It's the same description we're given in chapter 19. Go back there. Chapter 19 and verse 13 removes any doubt as to who this is. He was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called what? The Word of God. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like some of other, some of John's other writings? John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. We're familiar with that, right? First John chapter 1. We were writing to you about what we have handled and seen and touched the word of life. John likes that description, doesn't he? Hmm. Do you know why John likes that description so much? Do you know why he uses it in John chapter 1 and in first John 1 John 1? Because he saw the revelation first. Then he wrote the Gospels and the letters. And you better believe this vision right here as he sees Jesus called the Word of God by heaven that imprinted on him. And so he uses it in his other writings. Yes, this is Christ. His name is the Word of God. And there is no doubt this is Jesus returning. So as we get ready to finish chapter 19, we got to pause. Because it's going to use some language we're not familiar with. War. Blood. Slain. We're not used to hearing that, especially in connection with Jesus and His actions. Right? We're used to hearing about the Lamb of God that was slain. Not Jesus doing that to other people. What was done to Him? We're used to hearing about the meek and mild and merciful Lamb of God, which, amen, He is. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. We talk about the love of Christ that constrains us to reach out to others. We tell people what? Jesus loves you. Isn't that our message? Jesus loves you. He wants to save you. God loves you so much that He he sent His Son to die on the cross for you. Jesus loved you so much He gave His life for you. Would you please respond to the love? Please be saved. That's our message. That's the whole point of the church's message in the day and age we live in. We're used to tender mercy and grace. And that's true. That's all true. But that's not all the picture when it comes to Jesus. Jesus. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. You, you know this verse from Christmas cards. Isaiah chapter 9. I want you to see something here. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Just a couple more thoughts for this evening. and We'll be done. Probably done a little early, but that's okay. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. See what it says here. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Well, that's Christ. We know that, right? We know who this is talking about. And the government shall be upon His shoulder. And His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, we know that's talking about Jesus and His coming here to to be our wonderful counselor, right? And to to bring us peace. But not all of that was fulfilled at at His birth, was it? Was the government on His shoulders? No. The government killed Him. The Romans killed Him. He wasn't the head of the government. Did He establish His throne and has sat upon His throne for 2,000 years? Well, in a sense, yes, because He's God. But governments haven't totally bowed to Him, right? We do not see kings or rulers even of our country opening up the Bible and saying, Jesus, show us what You would have us to do. No, they're going against it, aren't they? So this hasn't been totally fulfilled yet even though this speaks of His verse, there are still some things yet to come. There's coming a day when He will be the government. The government will rest upon His shoulder, yes, because He will be supreme ruler, period. He will rule all things. He will come to execute it in judgment and with justice forever and ever. Revelation 19, at His second coming, is when that happens. If you go back there, if you've turned from there, let's look at just a couple more points. We'll be done. Verse 11, I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, he that sat upon him, was called Faithful and True. In righteousness, that's what I'm looking for. In righteousness, righteousness he doth judge and make war. Christ, Judges righteously and makes war righteously. We're not comfortable with that. Jesus is going to bring it when He gets back. He's going to put down, kill, obliterate His enemies, and it's going to be done righteously. There will be blood flowing about the space of a horse's bridle when Christ comes back to make war and to do so righteously. How could he do that? Well, that's just mean, Jesus. That makes me feel uncomfortable. I need to go to my safe space and contemplate my navel because I don't like speak like that. That's what the modern Christian thinks. No, 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 no. Think about this. Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself. He laid aside his glory to be found in fashion as a man. God became one of us in this failing, filthy flesh. In this humbled form for the High King of Heaven who spoke and like was to become like us. He humbled Himself to what? To be spit on. To be slapped. To have people mock Him. Oh, if you're the Christ, bring yourself down from the cross. We know our Father. Who's your Father? By His own people. Acts chapter 2 Peter says we heard about that sunday afternoon you took him and you murdered him you murdered your messiah you murdered god the son of course we know we know none of that would have happened unless christ gave himself willingly but that's an aspect of it right they gave him up to the romans to be killed his own people the hands of israel did that you read the gospel accounts and see how he was treated not to mention the millions of times, the mil- millions of ways His blood has been trampled on, as Hebrews chapter 10 says. As we willingly sin. I know I shouldn't do this because I'm saved, but I don't care if I do it anyways. You know what Hebrews 10 says? We are walking on the blood of Jesus. How many millions of times has that happened across human history, and all of the willing, unrepentant sin and blasphemy. Oh yes, Jesus has a right to do this. And He will come, and He will put all rebellion down. Let's remember the scene. Earth is shattered. The sun and moon are dark. Mountains, islands, landscape, cities, Destroyed by warfare, by supernatural occurrences. His people are worn, battered, but preserved. Holding faithfully to His promise. Reading the scriptures and saying to themselves, The time's drawing near. Lift up your head, redemption draweth nigh. Satan and his Antichrist has made havoc of the earth and done their best to stamp out the name of Christ, but it hasn't worked. And so in one last effort, they've gathered together masses of unbelievers in a place called Armageddon to take on God, to make war with Him. We're going to try to kill God once and for all. And then that last trumpet sounds. Sound that pierces the air. (laughs) I think all of God's people are going to stand up and shout with joy. At this point, you're either in or you're out. There's no walk in the fence. You're either following Him and you're all in or you're not in, I think, at this point. We're going to hear that last trump sound. And man, there's going to be a shout of joy come across the land because we know exactly what that's going to mean. It's the last trump. And the sky which was dark, as Revelation chapter 6 and Matthew 24 tells us, the sky which is dark begins to split. And brilliant light as that split grows wider and rolls apart like a scroll, that brilliant light lets us know exactly what's happening. We'll see graves open. And the dead in Christ, the faithful dead, coming out perfectly whole with glorified bodies and their, their feet lifting off the ground and rising in the air to meet with the Lord. We'll watch them for a second. And in the next moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as we shout with joy, we'll be caught up just the same. Our bodies being changed in the very same way, receiving our glorified bodies, changing our vile body like unto His glorious body, Philippians chapter 3. As we look for the Savior which comes from heaven, knowing that Christ is better than anything here on earth, Our faith at that moment will be realized as we are finally united with Him. His wife, she's made herself ready. She's been living righteously. And though our physical body might be battered and though we might be going through hard times, we're righteous in His righteousness with white, clean lives because we've been washed clean in His blood. And we'll hear the call. Come up here. Come up here. Behold, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to come again and receive you to myself that there where I am ye may be with me. Behold, the archangels shall shout and the last trump shall sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up with Him to be with Him in the air and so we shall ever be with Him. That will happen. And those on earth who see this, it's not going to be a happy sound. It's not going to be a happy sight. You know what they'll say? Revelation chapter 6, they'll start beginning to cry out for the rocks and the mountains. Fall on us! Hide me from the face of the Lamb. Because the day of his wrath has come. You see, on this day, Revelation nineteen eleven. there's no unbelievers anymore. <laughs> every eye shall see Him. Every tongue shall confess, every knee shall bow, right? This is the day when it flips, when it's sealed. Because they'll see Him They would not see Him as a humble Savior in this life. They would not see Him as the Lamb crucified from the foundations of the earth for forgiveness of sins. No, they would not see that. Now they'll see Him and they'll see Him as King Jesus. The conquering King and God of all. That's how Revelation 19.11 opens. I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the king on his horse is coming. He that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. On His head were many crowns, and He had a name written that no man knew but He Himself. And He was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. This is a scene of glory. This is a scene of majesty. This is a scene of power. This is Jesus as Lord. And that robe? Well, that's His blood, right? That's a symbol of His death on the cross, and it's such a peaceful reminder No, let's end with this. Isaiah 63. In fact, you might want to write that in the margins of your Bible by that verse. Isaiah 63. You're either going to take all this one of two ways. It's going to repulse you to think of Jesus that way. Oh, how could He? Or if you know Him, you say, Amen. Amen, Lord. So be it. Because we know this is His right. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this that cometh from Edom, with dyed garments from Basra, that is glorious in His apparel, traveling in the greatness of His strength, you get the same feeling? Revelation 19, 11? What's here? Here's the answer. Who is this? I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Oh, love that. I love that. I speak in righteousness, and I am mighty to save. That's Christ speaking. Verse 2. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that Treadeth in the winepress. The answer. I've trodden in the winepress alone. And of the people there was none with me. Now there's a difference. There's a difference here between the two translations. See if you notice it. For I will tread them in my anger. And trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. And I will stain all my raiment who's clothed in a vesture dipped with blood. What is this red garment you have on? It looks like you've been in the winepress. It's because I trample my enemies. I will trample my enemies. And it will stain my arraignment. Verse 4, For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. <laughs> See the two in one? The time of my redeemed has come, and so has my day of vengeance. Verse 5, And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation to me, and my fury it upheld me. This is Christ still speaking about His ability to complete what He had to do. My own arm brought salvation. Verse 6. And I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury and I will bring down their strength to the earth. He was clothed in a vesture dipped with blood. It's not His. It's His enemies. Because He's conquered them and He will conquer them. Again, maybe that upsets you. Or maybe you see that as righteous and right and vindicated. Regardless, that's how Jesus is coming back the second time to rule and to reign. And just turn back to Revelation 19, verse 14, and we'll end here. (laughs) Heaven's open. And the king is riding on a white horse and all that beautiful language. And he's riding triumphant, victorious. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him on white horses clothed with fine linen, white and clean. That's us. That's us. You see, we go with him to conquer and be victorious too. That's amazing to me. We'll pick up there next week as we we consider as Christ takes over and how He begins to set up His kingdom, what place His people has in that as we move towards the end of this book. So I pray it's been helpful. And until uh, until next week, I pray God's blessings on you.